0: Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This episode poses the question, what is electoral integrity? I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington and host of this podcast. I'm joined for today's episode by a very special guest, Professor Pippa Norris. Pippa is the Paul F. McGuire Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University and the founding director of the Electoral Integrity Project. Anyone who knows Pippa and her work, which is pretty much every political scientist and policymaker, knows it is almost impossible to summarize, given its breadth and depth. Pippa is best known for her groundbreaking research on public opinion and elections, the interplay between political institutions and culture, gender politics, and political communications. And rather than limiting her scope of study to one country or region, her work is truly global, demonstrated by countless published books and papers ranking her in the top five most cited political scientists in the world. Recently, she has published two books, Electoral Integrity in America, Securing Democracy, and Cultural Backlash, Trump, Brexit, and Authoritarian Populism. Pippa is also the director of the Global Partner Survey, co-director of the TrustGov project, and she's on the executive board of the World Value Survey. Among numerous awards in her career, I'll mention just two, in 2011, Pippa was awarded the Johann Skype Prize with Ronald Inglehart for their contribution to innovative ideas about the relevance and roots of political culture in a global context. And in 2020, Pippa received the Samuel J. Eldersfeld Lifetime Career Achievement Award from the American Political Science Association, which honors a scholar whose lifetime professional work has made an outstanding contribution to the field. So needless to say, I'm thrilled to have Pippa join me today. Hi, Pippa. Hi, James,
1: how are you? Pleasure to be
0: with you. Good, thank you. So Pippa, I know you and I could discuss all manner of subjects related to democracy and elections for hours and hours, Um, but today I thought we would focus on one area of your research, electoral integrity, given your work as the founding director of the Electoral Integrity Project, and whether the recent U.S. election, in fact, had integrity. Now, I often use the phrase electoral integrity um, in previous episodes of the podcast, but I'm not sure that I've ever really defined it. So you and your colleagues have been at the forefront of measuring this concept across countries and over time, and then working to support electoral integrity through policy innovation globally. But let me start by asking you, how do you define electoral integrity?
1: So it is a word which has come into fashion. And indeed, it started, I think, in the international community to try to work out when the elections worked and when they didn't. Free and fair elections is a bit of a cliche. Democratic elections isn't quite right. So the idea of Uh, electoral integrity in the international community, which is where we stole it from, is about international standards, the things which everybody agrees rooted in basic agreements on human rights, going right back to 1948 with rights to vote and to choose one's government, which are part of obviously the universal declaration, and then up to date all sorts of new conventions which have been agreed. So it's not like a political science concept, which is very, very narrow and precise, doesn't come from a particular thinker. You can't point to a book which says, oh, that's the seminal work on, on how to conceptualize it. But for that very reason, it's actually pretty good because everybody kind of nods whenever you say electoral integrity. Everybody knows value-wise, of course we want to have integrity, uh, partly because of the corruption agenda. And so it, it actually, a lot of people buy into this. And then the question is, how do we measure it? What are the standards? Are they the same in countries around the world? And how can we try and them?
0: So how is electoral integrity measured um, given your work and, and what you guys do? And what are the sort of component parts that add up to, yes, the selection had integrity or no, it didn't, or we're not quite sure.
1: So there's, there's lots of different methods. And the best thing is to triangulate as always with political science. So we have a variety of different sources of data. We see if they kind of come together and they're consistent. So one thing is to ask the public and in the world value survey in the sixth and seventh wave, we've got a battery of items. We've now asked it in about 80 different countries. Uh, about things like, do you believe that the election is fair? Do you think that uh, journalists provide fair coverage, Uh, et cetera, et cetera? So public opinion is one thing, but of course you can have a country where the public is thinking things are okay, even though they're not, for example, if there's very little information, right? So you might also have electoral observer missions, and that's been going on now for decades. Carter Centre, IFIS, OSCE, OAS, I mean, there's a whole alphabet soup. So they'll visit a country. And they've gone into much more long-term observation now. They realize you just can't turn up on polling day. They've got a whole method. And again, the United Nations has signed on to that. There's a convention which says that there are certain standards and it's become much more professional over the years. The um, OSCE in fact visited the United States and observed our election and, you know, wrote a report about good points, bad points. Then you've also got things like um, essentially autopsies. You can try and look into the data. Walter Meebane, for example, looks at the results, tries to work out if there are certain sorts of statistical irregularities in a place like Ukraine and Russia. So that's also useful. Um, But our method is is another one, and it supplements these, it's not exclusive. And we basically use expert surveys. So just like we have expert surveys to measure corruption in the 1990s, everybody said you can't measure corruption, but along came Transparency International, now everybody uses that perception of a a corruption uh, index. Similarly, VDEM, you think about the way that the variety of the democracy project tries to measure regimes, they also use experts. They have a standardized questionnaire and they, they try to establish, for example, were the judiciary um, independent, was the parliament effective, et cetera. So we use the same method for ours. And again, there's a very good book by um, uh, a couple of colleagues which has looked at, there's about a thousand different indices now which are available measuring all sorts of things from human rights through to environmental protection through to uh, democracy and so what we do is we essentially try to get a wide range of different experts always selected and always vetted. so we look for political scientists and related disciplines who published or got research demonstrated in elections parties and politics of the country and in our global surveys which we've done since 2012 we ask for about 40 experts per country that's our target sometimes we have more sometimes we have less but 40 is our target and essentially they fill out a questionnaire online which has got very detailed questions which creates an index of electoral integrity but the most important thing is just like varieties of democracy having a single index is much help not if you're in the country and not if you're in a country office you want to know so was it campaign funding was it corruption was it problems of the electoral law was it problems of the media Was it problems of the vote count. So you can break it down into each of the different dimensions, we have 11 different dimensions of electoral integrity throughout the electoral cycle, and then if you just want to look at one indicator, for example the availability of postal ballots or facilities for the disabled, uh, you can find those questions and just break it down yourself. So every year we publish a report which covers the world and all the elections that we've covered during that period, and it's an ongoing cycle that we continue, so for, for a number of countries done, or three electoral cycles now. I think we went back to 2012 in America, 14, 16, 18 and now 20. Um, and then we also can do this at sub-national level, meaning within a large country like Russia or the United States or Brazil, we can look at regions or states. So the most recent work we've done is electoral integrity in the 2020 US election released uh, 1st of December today. And what we're looking at is each state we've asked um, uh, colleagues across the country, um, twenty colleagues minimum, to actually evaluate the experience of the election in their particular state, and it's based on their observation and their research background, and then other things that they they're paying attention to in their in their local environment and so on. So everybody gets the questionnaire. Uh, it's online, obviously, and then we ask them to go through, and then we basically compile the whole results. We had, for example. Um, almost 800 experts, political scientists across the country in universities and colleges. Over half of these were senior faculty, and they looked at the election in Washington or in Mississippi or in Massachusetts and responded to our detailed questionnaire. We compiled the report. And what that means is that we can compare American elections over time. For example, we did this at state level in 2014, so we got a good series well before Trump. This isn't a partisan, it's a very independent um, project. And then we can also compare states if we want to say, so was Georgia or Arizona different to New York or, or California? And then we can also do lots of other comparisons um, a- across different countries and at different levels. So it's, it's kind of um, lots of different ways you can analyze the data. We put it out there for public resources and public releases pretty soon after the survey. And there are lots of downloads. For example, the 2018 US study had over 4,000 downloads, as I remember, from Dataverse. And all sorts of people can use it for whatever they want. We feel it's a resource for the community. Um, Our report is simply to call attention to it in some ways. We've published a lot of books and reports. But if you're doing a particular project in a particular country or particular state, and you want to say, you know, what's the pattern in terms of things like campaign funding? Or what's the electoral law? How do people evaluate that? Um, You can download the data.
0: Cool, and I should say that I've done, I've been asked to be an expert, I think I submitted responses for Afghanistan in 2014, and I think Kenya in 2017. And, and one of the things I really like is is two things that you hit on one is that it allows you to kind of, it's not just a thumbs up or thumbs down. It allows you to really delve into different aspects. And every country can succeed and have a lot of integrity in one aspect and then really not do well in another for whatever reason. So I think just the the, the depth with which you, you kind of go into it, I think is very helpful, particularly when it comes to teaching. And the second thing is what you kind of hinted at is, you know, you can kind of do quantitative indicator tracking of these things, but you can also delve really into the details and get a much better informed qualitative understanding of what's going on in a country. And I find that very useful for teaching as well.
1: That's, that's exactly how it's designed for. So if you're in the Afghan electoral commission, you really need to have an independent assessment of where are the strengths and weaknesses across different elections. This gives you an insights. And again, from the international community, we understand elections are a cycle. So in some countries it can be the the law that's created years before the actual polling day. In other countries it's the campaign which is a problem, violence, for example, in many places, or issues of corruption. In other cases it's actually the vote count or the announcement if there's a delay, um, and it's a cycle that kind of goes back to the beginning election management. So in America, for example, we're all focused right now in the media on the the balloting, on election day, and then the count. But in fact that's the last almost the last stage of the process and the problems aren't there um so despite the media headlines the problems are, are much more things like gerrymandering we find everybody's concerned about the districts a really critical issue that's going to be coming up in the next few years they're concerned about campaign funding the fact that there's so little transparency now with dark money flooding the system we're concerned about voting rights and suppression and how do you get on the register and then other issues like whether or not minorities and women are represented whether they have but barriers in standing for electoral office. So you have to understand that an election can go wrong at any stage, and essentially clever authoritarian regimes like Singapore basically weight the law in such a way they're going to get returned. Victor Orban did exactly the same. Others uh, are give a very uneven le- uh, playing field for party competition in the campaign. So very little access to state airways, for example, or unequal access to campaign resources, and others have problems the vote count, or the announcements or uh, how the electoral management body actually uh, is seen as partisan or, or biased. So no one problem for every country, but that's mm-hmm. great. And that really means you need a comprehensive way of measuring. And
0: a lot goes on in between election days too. I mean, there's a well, lot yeah. of stuff that can change in the regulatory environment and camping financing and stuff like that.
1: And again, the media isn't very good at covering that. They want the drama of election day and especially if something goes wrong, they'd love to cover that but the actual nitty gritty behind the scenes, technical aspects. I mean, what's wrong with American elections? One of the fundamental things is a winner-take-all system. And that is given so little attention, partly because it's not sexy and it's not comparative. Um, But if we didn't have a winner-take-all system, then party polarization would be much less of a problem. So it really is, you need to take a much more synoptic view of what's going wrong in the country.
0: Right. So I think what's been really interesting about this election in this campaign season is is this sort of language around electoral integrity really being used for the first time in the American context. And I don't mean by scholars like you, but actually by the media and by citizens and candidates um so give us so it's just interesting because it it finally feels like the united states has joined the 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 world of election observation of countries that have their elections observed and judged and criticized and, and also praised if they've done well um so it's kind of interesting from that perspective but i'm wondering if you can kind of go bit by bit and say how the u.s has scored in 2020 um what the strengths are what the weaknesses are and then perhaps comparing it to 2016 or 2014, when you guys started these measures for the US?
1: So we've done this uh, across different countries, as I said, the global study. They're essentially, of all the democracies, I'm afraid that the United States is more or less at the bottom of the rank. So you can take a list of democracies from say, VDEM or Freedom House, and look at their score, which is standardized over 100 points. And unfortunately, out of all the liberal democracies, um, America's right down there for a variety of reasons. Um, and other countries, interestingly, a whole bunch of new democracies, third wave created in the 1990s, are actually doing pretty well. Countries like Lithuania, or Latvia, um, Uruguay, uh, Chile, countries in, around the world, which have had much more attention to their elections, they kind of knew they had to set it up from scratch. They had international observers, give them advice, they had technical assistance. Because of that, they've done a pretty good job. Um, So the United States has kind of been assuming that democracy works, we're the leading democracy, our elections have been going on forever and it's been pretty um, resistant to change. So there have been changes at state level, of course, but they haven't gone through a radical shift. um, And the problem is that essentially since 2000, Bush v Gore, there's been more and more contention, more and more disputes. In some ways, 2020 was predictable. Um, we knew these were the problems. We knew that there were difficulties. We'd seen these all before. We knew also, of course, that the president had been talking about issues of voter fraud, re- elections since he came down the golden escalator. He said this in the 2000 election, uh, that he wasn't going to accept the results necessarily. So when somebody tells you what they think, as we say, you better believe them. And he'd been sign- signaling this along with his rhetoric about fraud and, and fake media, et cetera every single time. Since the election, however, there's been, according to the New York Times, something like uh, 500 tweets about fraud from the president in, I think, a three-week period, which is really remarkable. He's just done nothing else. And uh, about two-thirds of these have referred to the election and problems in the election and so on. And he's continuing now, even though he kind of says, yes, I'll get out the White House if I have to, but Things are going wrong now in Arizona, now in Georgia, and so on. So nothing is going to stop him. And even uh, uh, today, he said, um, "I'm never going to, you know, stop uh, my my focus on the problems of the elections, etc." So um, we haven't escaped. Now, what do the experts say? So this survey of 800 was done after the election, and it was done until the 23rd of November. So it's very up to date, and the results have just been released.
0: And again, this is at 50 scholars in every 50 states commenting on the the quality of elections in their state.
1: That's right. For all 50 states. That's right. So we said in your state, and we go through the checklist. um, So 800 do not comment on every state. Of course, that would be impossible. They comment on the ones they're most um, directly involved in. So they're kind of feet on the ground. And because they they know elections, they know parties. For example, most of the colleagues are affiliated with some of the organized sections in APSA. That's how we get their contact names. Um, and then we've we've also verified them over the years in a variety of ways. So what what we find is three things essentially. Number one, the experts essentially overwhelmingly reject the claims of fraud. We ask them eight different questions <laughs> to try and get it in as many ways as possible. And on every one, about 90% or 80% say, no, 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 that didn't happen in my state.
0: So we're talking ballot stuffing, problems with mail and ballot counts, uh, fake signatures, that, that, the kind of voting itself and the ballot count.
1: Votes were counted fairly. Okay. 99% said, yeah, that's true. Elections were conducted in accordance with the law. 97% said that's true, et cetera, et cetera. They overwhelmingly rejected fraud across whatever I asked them in a variety of different ways. Second point that they came up with though, is that it, again, we shouldn't go to the, swing over to the opposite to say, oh, everything's perfect quote, the most secure election in history. No, no, no. Instead, there are real problems. And uh, the difficulties is that the fraud message has overwhelmed the other problems. And they're longstanding. And again, they're in earlier stages. So as previous reports highlight, electoral laws at state level and gerrymandering districts favor incumbents, which is a fundamental problem. You need new blood in Congress. You need to have turnover. And if you only get back incumbents, that gives you no choice. Um, Campaign coverage by the local press and TV lacked fairness and balance social media amplified misinformation. Again, not new, but the experts overwhelmingly said, that's a problem in my state. Campaign finance lacked transparency. Women and minority candidates encountered barriers to elected office. The declaration of results generated lengthy disputes. So the analysis basically confirmed what we'd seen in 2018, 2016, but it's worth saying. And then lastly, we asked them, have things got better or worse? So we wanted to know in their perceptions. And here the problem was that the performance of the contest really has lots of red flags about legitimacy. Because people felt that there were many more disputes, worsening public confidence, falling public trust, um, threats of even campaign violence, which really again is not an American thing, you would have thought, that essentially that there's a, a, a legitimacy crisis. And here what you mean is that people don't accept the rightful process, the rules of the game, they don't accept the outcome, the winner, and that poses real problems for essentially the Biden administration coming in. And again, legitimacy crises, as you know, are not something that normally America talks about that much. I mean, we've had them in the past. We have Watergate, clearly. We had other impeachment inquiries, but with elections, um, other than Florida, which was a delayed reaction, and so on. By and large, we kind of accept the results, and this is just totally off the charts. And it's not simply the rhetoric, it's also the fact that the Republicans absolutely seem to believe there's a series of polls, YouGov, I just looked at a late poll in November, and again, again, basically, the figures for Trump voters and Republicans is off the charts when you look at who believes this, and essentially 80% do not believe the outcome was fair, 80% believe that Biden, um, uh, these are Trump voters, remember, not of everybody, but nevertheless, they believe that um. Trump won the election and that Biden will only, well, only uh, enter the White House because of um, rigged elections. So these are, these are problems if they persist, which is not unlikely, and if they continue to depress American faith in elections, which was already low before the election and is likely to go down further.
0: Well, let me let me push back on an aspect of this on on two points and get your get your thought on this since you're really an expert. The the first pushback I would offer is that, you know, I don't think it's ideal that any candidate is ever impugning the quality of an election in a strong democracy that has done pretty well running elections before election day as a means to sort of posture and erode legitimacy. I don't I don't think that's ideal. Um, however, I think the president having done that sort of made these election workers and the ballot certification stuff, the stuff that you and I nerd out about all the time, became like the sexy thing of the news. And actually, I think it showed Americans how strong the process is. I mean, even the attempts in states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania to throw things, you know, to, to throw things off, really, I think, revealed strong parts of the the process that a lot of Americans just had no idea about. And so I think perhaps he overplayed his hand, but I think what it did is it it revealed what it means to have a fair process and a fair result. So that would be the first thing I'd ask you, to, I I'd sort of push back on. The second thing is, is on the on the Trump voters not sort of understanding reality or not believing that the result was free and fair. I mean, so what, who cares? You know, a lot of Democrats were angry after Florida 2000. Um, these people don't like Biden anyway. They, you know, they're going to want Trump. A lot of people do kind of recognize it and maybe think there's a process. But these aren't voters that are going to, quote unquote, exit the system or call for authoritarianism, are they? Aren't they just going to sort of say, look, we we took our licks this time and we'll live to fight another day. So in four years, let's try to win the election.
1: So the first point, I mean, really good points, James, to think about these issues. Um, nerds were so excited to suddenly find that second state <laughs> in obscure places. We're coming on television and that we were seeing polling workers doing their job excellently. And we were understanding, oh, look, there's different rules in one state or another. And of course, we nerded out, to use your phrase. Problem is that if you're a Trump supporter, then you use motivated reasoning and you hear on the news, fraud, fraud, fraud. And then they, then the journalists will say uh, this was incorrect or they'll say this is baseless or they even now start to use the, the L word and talk about lies. But for most people, they hear the word fraud, not the rest. And so that's the predominant agenda, which, unfortunately, the president has set, which his allies, including Giuliani and his, his defense team, have again alleged with wild conspiracy theories. And which, unfortunately, the senior Republican leadership has not pushed back upon, other than a handful of the regular, you know, usual suspects. Right. So um, you and I know that we've learned a lot which is great. We all understand, people understand there, there is an electoral college. I mean, how many Americans really knew what that was and that people actually met and they voted, etc. So civics, kind of great if you're interested in civics. If you're not, no, it's a bad message. And the second thing you said is, do we care? Well, yeah, we do, because there are 74 million Americans. They're not a small little group sitting in Idaho. And they also believe that things are unfair and rigged. Remember also that we've had a rising party polarization for many, many decades now. This is not new, but this adds fuel to the fire. It really stokes the anger. It stokes the bitterness. It stokes the lack of ability to compromise and bargain. And and I just gave a talk at the PSA and I said there's six different dangers that this transition crisis is is producing. I went through them. There's the practical administration, i.e. Have you got the money? And that's kind of been sorted out now with the GSA. We've got issues of, of uh, party polarization, which is always there, nothing brand new, but this is deepening it. You've got issues in the Republican party. And here, I think we do have some good evidence that um, you said, well, they'll just kind of go away or they'll just forget about it after a while. In fact, there, there's good evidence from the new data by the party produced by the variety of the democracy group and by my own survey of global parties which says that the the Republicans is increasingly adopting authoritarian values. By values, we mean they emphasize security versus freedom and a broader sense of um, uh, kind of uh, tolerance. They also emphasize that they are under threat because they're outside forces who are pushing back on their values. And therefore it's an us them situation. If you give a little bit on the cultural values, then you'll just compromise your basic basic beliefs. And then then lastly, they believe in a strong leader. And the proportion of Americans, for example, in the World Value Survey who say, I'd like to have a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress and elections. In 1995, when we first asked that question, about 25% of Americans said, yeah, sounds great. don't like Congress and elections. Oh, well, 25% that went up in the next wave. It went up in the subsequent wave and it's now in the fifth wave, which we've asked that. And it's about um, four out of 10 Americans. And it's even worse amongst Republicans. So people... (laughs) are saying uh uh do they want to have democracy yeah but do they want to have a strong man leader without elections yes
0: quite a lot of people are saying that in america but hasn't the republican party essentially been at this since 1968 yeah 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 it's not new what's what's cherished however
1: is that it's become i mean essentially our book on um cultural backlash is very much about these long-term shifts the rise of of social liberalism On the one side, amongst a small group, the well-educated, the younger generation, etc., the progressives living in urban areas, and those who had more traditional values, conservative values, and who are particularly on the cultural front, highly religious, believing in patriotism, not multilateralism, believing in in white America, not necessarily diversity and pluralism as a a broad value, believing in a whole range of other uh, traditional values towards, uh, for example, reproductive rights, gay rights, women, etc as that liberal group and generation has expanded. And again, it has grown through population change as the conservative, socially conservative group has shrunk and has become very much within rural America and within, with, within certain less educated groups and among certain groups like white men. So you can see that they're increasingly under threat and that has made the whole cultural wars much more salient. So it's nothing new, James, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a long-term process. We're talking about a change in society And of course, the shifting, which means we now have these two Americas, the liberal coastline, uh, which has expanded, for example, in Arizona, and then the conservative heartland. And um, the problem is that, uh, again, the Republicans have pushed further. They could have expanded when they lost with Bush, remember, they had a report after that election, which said, you know, let's try and bring in more diversity. Let's get get a wider variety of different groups engaged in the Republican party, and young people in particular, instead of which they went the other way by accident, more than anything, it was kind of a road, a twist in the path. They went towards Trump, who's exacerbated and only only appealed to this social conservative face. So the roots were there for longer, but it's come to a head, if you like.
0: So one of the things I'm hearing you say, and I think this is important, is, you know, people when people talk about polarization, they often make the, the comparison to Weimar Germany. Um, And maybe that's a facile comparison, but there the polarization was really about people on the right, on the extreme right, as well as the moderate right, and people on the sort of moderate left, socialist, but also communist. And it it was really ideological polarization that sort of then gets mapped onto institutions and parties. But what you just described isn't isn't just about Democrats and Republicans. It's about sort of a, a polarization of people who believe in democracy, whatever that means. Um, but like you said, pluralism, inclusion. I mean, we can fight about the, the correct marginal tax rate as people who still believe in democracy. And, the, you know, the party to the left can say it should be higher and the party to the right can say it should be lower. But we're talking about polarization of people who believe in democracy, not just parties. And so what you're describing is, is people who just are sort of rejecting democracy entirely.
1: Or at least enough of it. Let me qualify that a little bit. Um, As I see it, and I've been arguing in my paper, for example, in party politics on measuring populism, there are three dimensions of competition. So left, right is still there, and that's about the state versus markets and tax cuts versus spending, and that's always been there and that will be. But that's kind of shrunk in terms of the polarization in America. Then we have the cleavage which overlays that which is on culture between liberals and, and conservatives or liberals and authoritarians. And that group, again, has always been there, but it's increased its salience um, in recent years. Reagan started it, kind of, but then it's it's got worse, particularly over issues of race and immigration, patriotism and nationalism and things like that. And then, uh, as you say, the tax cuts you can kind of argue about, right? The, the cultural issues are much more hardline. You kind of believe it as your values or you don't. You can't compromise very easily on those. Then the third dimension is, well, essentially about essentially as I put it, pluralism and pluralistic liberal democracy versus populism. Now populism in itself also is a form of democracy in the sense that it believes in that power should go back to the people, the will of the people should prevail, but it's majoritarian. And in practice, of course, the will of the people has very few channels other than through the leader. Um, And they push back on elites, whether they're in Harvard or whether they're in DC or whether they're in New York Times and so on. so the power of populism is it says, well, in fact, we're more democratic than you are, not less, uh, but essentially your institutions are corrupt, they're not representative, they're not working, so populism is, is the solution. And where you go to a populist um, perspective, again, it's very us-them, uh, i.e. is winner-take-all. If I win, you lose. And that's exacerbated by party polarization, It's exacerbated by a presidential system. And so you get very heated friction. And again, it's not just about public policy 101, healthcare, economics, foreign policy. It's about the rules of the game. And if you can't agree those, then you've got real problems. Right.
0: So are there, um, from the expert survey you've done with the US, are there kind of, I don't want to say easy or obvious, because I know that that's the wrong kind of phrasing, but sort of, you know, what would be the next steps of reform in the US to improve electoral integrity that are that are at least small picture enough or or possible that you could see actually making some progress on it. Um, And and what does that look like?
1: In a sense though, James, I think that's not quite the right issue because technically we know how to do this stuff. And indeed I would point to H.R. 1, 2019, a bill which has gone through the House, hasn't yet gone through the Senate or been accepted But this essentially is something that we end up in the report recommending. And this gives a a number of sensible recommendations. It's before the People's Act, and it would make it easier to vote, i.e. bring back the Voting Rights Act that had been abandoned. It would make it um, it would limit partisan gerrymandering, would fix the campaign finance system and strengthen ethics rules. And then there are a whole bunch of other things. If you look on the Biden website and you look at the transition website, you'll find that this is very much the sort of framework of practical reforms that he and his, and the democrats are now favouring. Problem is, not so much technicalities, we know what to do, we don't know how to get there. And um, particularly if the senate doesn't go to the democrats, and even if it does, many of these issues will end up in the courts, even if there's legislation. And again, many other countries have gone through radical electoral reforms. I think of the UK in 1997, and they brought in a, a Scottish parliament, a Welsh assembly, uh, a new Northern Ireland Assembly, new elections for Euro- the European Union, new new ways of electing local local mayors. About six different electoral systems now exist. You can never get that in America because it's so rigid and the constitution is so difficult to shift, and the laws depend on partisan players; they're not impartial, and so we don't have an electoral management body like you would have in Canada or the United Kingdom, and so there's nobody who can really push through enough pressures to be able to do this, even though, um, essentially, we we kind of know what to to do.
0: Do you think there's room um, at the state level? I I always sort of say there's the good states, the bad states, and the middling states. And as long as the good states can kind of share their innovation and what they've done that works well, I'm thinking of Colorado, Utah, California, Washington, Oregon, kind of the the list we always say. Um, Mm -hmm. Do, do you see room at, at the state level for kind of learning and knowledge sharing and linkages in such a way that there, there might be some states, maybe not in the South, but in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic, and then in the, in the Midwest that might pursue some reforms, learning from those in the Far West?
1: I think that's absolutely right. The great virtue of the system is we have experimentation. And so you can find out what works, for example, for independent boundary commissions, and that can take off as an idea. Or proportional results um, in the electoral college and again that's an idea which is coming along or other changes problem is that of course they are the classic states and democrats have this agenda so the whole issues have become non uh, so partisan that you can't really escape that i'll give you a a quick example as you know most most democrats are really concerned about voter suppression voter rights long lines at the polls for communities of colors and many other barriers are really problematic the felons who aren't able to vote and so on but i think that you need a bipartisan consensus, which is that security is important, as is inclusion. So some form of voter ID, I think, is fine if it's properly managed, if it's freely available, if it's efficiently administered. India, for example, with a population of 800 million, has an excellent voter ID service with photo. You can go to the polls and there are the photos in the polling station which match the photo of of the user. So Democrats, if ever I suggest that, say, oh, no, it can't do that. That's Republican. And if you say voter suppression, then Republicans say, oh, no, we can't do that. That's Democrat. So in a sense, the system is broken and both sides know what potential reforms are. But how are you going to get this passed in Alabama? How are you going to get this passed in um, in Georgia or well, Georgia is now a Democrat, but how are you going to get this past in some of the, country, some of the states which had the worst performance? And, and, and having virtue in California or in Massachusetts is great. The Brennan Center again has documented the changes in voting laws over the last four years. And they do document an expansion of voting facilities to convenience voting in more parts of the country than there are contractions. And I do think that things like the postal voting that we all had in this election under the pandemic People know that this is convenient. They know that people want it. And so that's likely to persist um, and to be a new facility for most Americans. But the other states, and particularly the suppression of voting rights in the Old South, is getting worse. Um, And again, there's no umpire because the federal government, the federal and Congress has always stood back and said, we don't really have a strong role. The FEC is broken, it's gridlocked, it can't do anything. The um, Electoral Administration Commission is great. But again, it's about advice. It's as weak as you can get. It doesn't actually impose standards on particular states. There's no sense that we can have uniform, for example, simple things like polling hours. You'd have thought on election day, there would be a way to say, look, you you poll from eight o'clock till eight o'clock at night. And that's the way that we vote. And if you move state, it doesn't matter because that's the way you vote. Equal votes across the country should be a basic principle. We can't even agree on that. So everything is left to local areas, and States and the state officers and the local officials are partisan, so it's it's like a vicious cycle how you how you break into that in the states that aren't working, and part of the legacy of this election is going to be more laws Rick Hansen has suggested which actually then start to tighten up on some of the things which they
0: failed in the courts well, so if you see it if you see kind of the the hard work of institutional reform. Um, in the future. What about sort of this idea of, you know, given the fact that we have a Biden Harris administration coming in, we had a very, you know, hotly contested election, we have a pandemic, we have an economic crisis, we have a crisis of (laughs) racial justice. um, And even if the Democrats win those two seats in Georgia, things in the Senate are not going to be easy, they never are. what what can the new administration or what is sort of Congress and the new administration do about the sort of uh, populism, the sort of tamping down? I mean, there's misinformation online. There's a the rise of populism. There's the fact that Trump may still be tweeting. You know right. what? And, and, I, and, I, and, and for Democrats and Republicans, I mean, this is going to be an issue for the Republican Party as well. So what, what do you see sort of the path for that?
1: So, populism is such a big thing. Uh, It's not going to go away because it hasn't gone away in most countries around the world where it's risen. It can go up and down with particular leaders or particular parties, but it's going to be there because it's got long term drivers. It's Sociology 101 is the reason for for this. So, it's not just about Trump as a narcissistic personality, as many in the media or commentators would love. It's not just about an individual, it's about a structure and it's a change, the GOP. And the way I see it is that. Parties are like ocean liners. They take a long time to turn around. They kind of go in one direction. And essentially what's happened in this election is that the Senate uh, and the House has strengthened the Republican hand. So they're not going to feel that they need to change. It's driven out over time the moderates, by and large. Susan Collins got back elected, but many others have either stood down or, or, or pursued other careers during the Trump years. And so you've got people who are slightly more extreme and in some ways more Trumpist than they were before the election. Think about few and non-candidates who got elected. So what it takes is the shock of defeat, and not just one defeat, but two bad defeats. And I can think of other cases. Again, I always think of Britain and the Thatcherites, and what caused them? Mrs. Thatcher was very successful. 1979, 1983, 1987, she started to lose support. But really, she was dumped by the party, and the party changed over two successive uh, defeats, bad defeats under Tony Blair. And then the shock of defeat made them, that's the time when parties shift. That's the time when they look at their programs, they look at their appeals, they look at their strategy and they say, okay, maybe tax cuts under Thatcher have kind of had their day and we need to have a different type of conservatism. So I think with Republicans, if they think about the defeat of the White House, they know that they've had a bad record in successive elections now, but largely because of their strategy. But they know they can always get the Senate, partly because of the rural overrepresentation and through the electoral college, they're also overrepresented, and they haven't had a defeat. So, if they have, well, a major defeat in, in many other layers, and of course, they've made uh, gains in state houses. So, they're going to try to first manipulate the rules to get back into power. And that means things like the census debate going on now, who should qualify, and then reapportionment and districting. But if in 2022 they had a bad midterm defeat, which is possible depending on uh, so many different contingencies. You have a vac- vaccine come back. The economy kind of roars back after this period of depression. Biden has been very positive towards the communities of colour, so he'll do something on racial justice and police reform, perhaps potentially not defund, but some other things. So you might come back to a kind of you know happier time in, in America in 2022, and then the Republicans will do badly. And then it will depend on 2024. Again, if they go for a Trump, or if it's even Trump himself, and there are a number of candidates who who are Trumpist in the governorship and and in the Senate who might want to stand in his place, then they'll they'll have to see how how they run and whether they can reform that MAGA coalition under a new leader. Entirely possible, I think, since so many people did vote for Trump. If, however, again, they were badly defeated for a second time, then that's when I think the Republicans would say, okay, realism, we just can't go for this Essentially, if you look at the base for for Trump, it's been 40%, 40% or so in the polls. It kind of was 46%, 47%. That's not enough to win in a majoritarian system. So we need to go back to a sensible strategy of the median voter, i.e. the suburban women, and that means
0: a more moderate uh, appeal. So, so Pippa, what I'm hearing you say is that then definitely Trumpism, if not Trump himself, are here for four more years at least, and then depending on how that goes at the at the presidential level in 2024, then you might get a reckoning or not. Um, I, I I'm with you. I think 2022 originally I thought would probably be a pretty big loss for Biden Harris, but I think. Now that the sort of midterm after a president's elected, the midterm loss is kind of changing now, and that's shifting. I think, particularly if there is a COVID vaccine, that that may sort of put this off. But so you're saying at least four years, and then maybe beyond four years.
1: Parties take a long time to change because because basically it's the people in Congress who got elected under that platform and under Trump's leadership. say, so, hey, it worked. Okay, he didn't work. He tweeted a bit too much, quote unquote. But the strategy of, of essentially appealing to the base in rural America got us elected. Why change? Why, why, why argue with success? You need realism, and that only comes if you're defeated.
0: What happens if if he or members of his family or inner circle are indicted and or he kind of makes a play for a media empire to, to relieve a lot of his debts? How do you see his next act, if he has one, playing into this?
1: I'm going to leave that to the journalists, because I, I don't know, you don't know, we don't know. It all depends so much on his own individual career goals, and I can imagine that he will be around in terms of some media uh, some media, force, because that's his brand, and he'll still be very active within the party. And it depends, again, on so many other contingencies of who else is around to run for, for the next presidential round, um, who's going to exert any leadership. Also, of course, whether Mitch McConnell goes. That would be an important change in the Senate. So the next four years, there's... Too many things on the horizon to be able to predict with any
0: company. But, but I I meant more specifically on the side of voters. Like, do you think voter, uh, his supporters, like, still kind of want him around? Or do you think from their perspective, oh, yeah. he might be kind of irrelevant and they, they're they ready to move on to support somebody who can plausibly win in the future?
1: I mean, if you see the people who are turning out at his rallies or today in Arizona in the demonstrations trying to try and overturn those results, they're the true believers and they're not paying attention to all the nerdy things, and they're not paying attention to us or the media. And for him, uh, the depths of their adulation is just remarkable. Um, so, but but you know, there, there can be other candidates with his ideas, but without the baggage, either the legal baggage or the personality baggage or other things. And mean, in, and indeed that could be even more dangerous. Uh, Brian Class always talks of Trump as an incompetent want-to-be authoritarian. You know he had these instincts and values which uh, as against the rule of law or the independence of the judici- judiciary or the press and so on, but he can never quite deliver <laughs> on those promises right. because he was just, um, he, was, he, he was out of, you know, and he didn't have enough alliance, uh, people who would a- enable him either, even though there were enough, there were also people who have always pushed back. So I mean, we can all speculate, but we're not, we're not meant to be pundits. We're meant to be people who can say, well, here's some evidence about what's going on in countries around the world and past history and this current election. Um, And we'll see where we develop. And also, of course, it might not be Biden, it might be Harris by 2024. So there are too many uncertainties going on.
0: Yeah. And in that respect, I think the United States actually does reflect a lot of other countries where once an election is wrapped up, things still stay very, very interesting. You know, still, things still stay, you know, the, pol- the the blood sport of politics doesn't go away just because the election has gone away. And I think, the United, you know, I, I, I've done so much work in Kenya where it's just like every single day, you know, five years before an election, they're talking about the next election. And I yeah. I, I see the United States kind of going in that direction where people just live and breathe politics like a sport in ways they didn't before.
1: Well, remember that Anthony King said that America has more elections than any other country around the world because of the way you have primaries, and then you have generals, and then you have midterms and everything else. So most places at least have a little breather for a couple of years before we get in, when we talk about public policy, remember that boring public policy stuff we were meant to be doing in government? Um, and then we talk about... That's boring,
0: though. That doesn't sell newspapers and get retweets anymore. So I don't think people are interested as much well,
1: in that. I, I, I agree with you on a cynical way, but... The problems are so great right now, for all the reasons you've mentioned, right? People are passionate about racial justice. They're passionate about, one way or the other, about getting a solution to the coronavirus and the dreadful deaths which are going on right now and the economy. So people want government, or they want things to work. And some people want government to make things work, Um, but certainly we want to get out of this fix that we're in right now, because things are about as bad as I can remember in America, basically.
0: Well, Pippa Norris, I think that's a great place to end. Do you have any further closing thoughts?
1: No, I mean, I remember also I'm a comparativist, not an Americanist. There are many others can speak about particular states or particular localities and things like that. But I always put America as one of American political science always seems to say, well, look, here's American politics. And then here's comparative politics. And that's the rest of the world. Even if you're only doing like Kenya, you're a comparativist. Whereas if you're doing America, you're Americanist. I mix them up because I think Americanists should as well. The fact that America has not, for example, systematically looked at how the public feels about democracy in America in public opinion polls, unlike every other country around the world, is quite remarkable. We have very little series on that. and We take for granted the electoral system and the constitution and so on. Well, you know, other countries are not taking it for granted and we need to wake up, smell the coffee, and understand that we can learn from some other places, even over the border in Canada or in many other parts
0: of the world as well. I wholeheartedly endorse that perspective for sure. So Pippa Norris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UDA Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact yudapoliticaleconomy@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.